Will you please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5. And uh, these brothers are coming forward, Bibles in hand. And if you'll get their attention, if you need a copy of God's Word to follow along as we look at 1 Peter 5, then they'll get one to you that's already marked at the passage we'll be considering. So just open to where it's marked, and you'll be able to follow along. And today is our 25th and final message covering the five chapters of the book of 1 Peter. We began doing that over seven and a half months ago at the end of April. Now, when you get to the end of a book like we are today, it's very easy for us to do what we do at the end of a movie. Skip the credits and sometimes the dedications that are at the end. In the case of credits, it's the listing of names of those who made the movie possible by the various roles they played in making it. And if there are dedications, it's to someone or some group of people who meant something special to the entire crew, often someone who passed away during production. But we most often skip all that. Now, deciding to skip out of the credits for and perhaps dedications to people who we don't know and we have no particular reasons to identify with is probably a good choice. That's 10 or 15 minutes of your life you'll never get back. and could be used more profitably trying to beat the traffic out of the theater. And those credits and dedications are not part of the movie in any case. But if we're not careful, we can treat the end of Bible books like the end of a movie. And especially those books of the Bible that are letters, like is First Peter. And they sometimes contain credits and commendations and greetings at the end. There are some important, important differences between the Bible's credits and those at the end of a movie. First of all, the end of each Bible book is still part of God's Word. It is part of the movie. And second, the people who are listed are either those we know of or even if we do not, they're people we can identify with because we have much in common with them. Now, this tendency to skip over the end, I experienced just this morning on the drive here. My uh, daughter, my secondborn, said, Daddy, what's the sermon on today? And I said, it's the end of First Peter, the last three verses, and I quoted them to her. And she looked at me and said, well, what are you going to say about that? It's my own flesh and blood. And then I remembered to myself, she takes after, after Kim. <laughs> what we have at the end of First Peter is, in fact, a listing of people that we either know or can identify with because of what we have in common with them. Take a look at the last three verses. Beginning in verse 12, with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son, Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. At the end of this letter, Peter, the author, says that all that he has written has really been about the true grace of God. 
But he tells us that this book that it's about that is about the true grace of God was provided to us with the assistance of another person. He mentions a man named Silas specifically. And then he goes on to emphasize some other connections that his first readers have with those that are mentioned as well in these three verses. People like Mark and she who is in Babylon, which we will see in just a bit. And so that's why I say in the outline that we inserted in your program, if you don't have that out already, I encourage you to take a look at that, where we say that we have to recognize that God's grace, which this book is about, is given to us in a myriad of ways. And I've got two major ways that this passage tells us God's grace is dispensed to us. The first of those is through His servants. God's grace is given to us through His his people, His servants. And it's given to us in, first of all, those servants that, that we know. And that's why verse 12 says, with the help of Silas, Peter says, I have written to you. Now, it is quite possible that Silas may have ministered in the northern provinces where the churches to whom this letter was first written were located. And so that's why I say, in all likelihood, and I'll show you some other reasons in a, in a bit, that these people would have, would have known Silas. And so Peter mentions that it's with his help that this recounting of the true grace of God has been given to you. In fact, the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 16 that Silas went to the very places that these churches to whom 1 Peter was written is located. Acts 16 says, Paul, along with Silas and Timothy, traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, and they came to Bithynia and Pontus. Now, these are some of the regions that are mentioned in chapter 1 and verse 1 of 1 Peter. Christians in the provinces, it says in that verse, of Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia in 1 Peter 1, 1. And By the way, when it mentions Asia in chapter 1 and verse 1, it's not speaking of the huge continent that we know today. It was actually then an area that's mostly modern-day Turkey for us. So this man Silas traveled to the places to which this letter was written many years before it had been written. And that's partly why I say Silas is someone then that they, they know. And when verse 12 says that he is a faithful brother, you see that? Some translations say our faithful brother. But it says literally in Greek, the language that your New Testament was written in, it says literally he is the faithful brother. As if he is known to these readers. So who is this Silas? And what did he do to help Peter write this book? Well, first, the Bible tells us that he was a leader in the very first Christian church in the city of Jerusalem. And there he was known as a man of integrity. In fact, he was so trusted that he was sent to deliver a letter to the churches containing the decision of an important council that met in Jerusalem to iron out a dispute that had arisen among the churches. And we'll see more about that dispute a little bit later. And so the Bible tells us of Silas and this particular task in Acts chapter 15. They chose Barsabbas and Silas, two men who were leaders among the brothers. With them, they sent the letter of their decision. 
And it was this very Silas who was selected by the great Apostle Paul to travel with him on Paul's second of three missionary journeys. Again, Acts 15 tells us, Paul chose Silas and left. Commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, they went, strengthening the churches. So this Silas, mentioned at the end of 1 Peter, was a leader in God's church. He was a missionary, and he was a courageous man for the cause of Christ because he was imprisoned with Paul on that second missionary journey that he accompanied Paul on. The Bible tells us of that then in Acts chapter 16. It says, After Paul and Silas had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell, and he fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. I just picture that scene. You're Paul, you're Silas. What are you doing if you're in the inner cell of a prison for nothing other than preaching the gospel? But here they are, witnessing really to the joy that comes only through Christ because they are able to sing hymns to God in the midst of this difficult circumstance. And God used the witness of Paul and Silas and their joy in the midst of that imprisonment to cause the jailer to ask, ask them, what must I do to be saved? And some of you have read that. You will remember they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your house. And that is exactly what happened and that very night. That man, his family, were brought into the family of God. And so Silas was a leader in God's church. He was a missionary. He was courageous for the cause of Christ. And he's someone who had proven himself to be faithful. When verse 12 says, Whom I, Peter, regard as a faithful brother. That, that verse and the wording there is literally in this order. Silas the faithful brother whom I, Peter, regard as such. He's the faithful brother. And I, Peter, the apostle, I regard him that way. And the word that's translated regard is this Greek word, logizomai. We get an English word, logic, from it. And it refers to a reasoned examination of evidence from which a conclusion can be drawn. And it's saying this, that Peter examined the life of Silas and determined he was a faithful brother based upon what he saw in the life of Silas. And so Silas is a leader, a missionary. He's courageous. He's faithful. That's who he is. But what help did he provide to Peter in writing this letter? Well, he did a couple of things. One, he delivered the letter from Peter to the churches mentioned in chapter 1 and verse 1. When it says in verse 12, with the help of Silas, that's the same phrase that's used in the passage that I showed you earlier back in Acts chapter 15, where Silas and another brother delivered a different letter in a different set of circumstances. And so here, like in that passage in Acts 15, it's saying Silas delivered the letter on behalf of Peter. Another evidence of the fact that Silas is the one who delivered, carried this letter, is that there's no greeting from Silas to the people who received it. There's a greeting from Mark 
in, in verse 13. There's a greeting from she who is in Babylon that we'll identify in, in a bit. But there's no greeting, personal greeting from Silas. And that's because by the time they read the letter, they'll have already been greeted by Silas since he's the one delivering it. And so Silas helped Peter by delivering the letter to those to whom it was written. And here's a second thing. It's highly probable that Silas actually penned the letter of 1 Peter. In the New Testament, it was New Testament times, it was not unusual for a writer to use something called an amanuensis, a secretary of sorts who would write what the author dictated. And so, for example, Paul would often have someone else pen what he dictated, and then at the end of the letter, he would sign it and offer personal greetings and remarks. And that appears to be what Peter has done with 1 Peter. We see an example of Paul doing this at the end of the letter to the churches in Galatia. Galatians chapter 6, the last chapter of that book, says this. Paul says, See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. So he's dictated this to someone else, an amanuensis, a secretary, has taken it down, and then at the end he signs it. He says, I'm writing to you now with my own hand. And he gives final instructions. But that then raises a question uh, about Peter, uh, Peter's uh, ability to write first Peter at all. And that's another reason that it appears Silas is the one who penned it for him. Because notice what the Bible says about Peter. In Acts chapter 4, the Bible says, Peter and John were unschooled, ordinary men. And yet, and you wouldn't know this if you don't, if you don't read uh, New Testament Greek, but the Greek grammar of 1 Peter is quite polished. The Greek grammar of 2 Peter is not. And that's probably because Silas smoothed it out as he wrote on Peter's behalf. So God's grace, friends, is mediated through the faithful lives of his people. And God's grace to those who received this letter originally and now by extension to us these millennia later has been given to us through the faithful lives of his people, Peter, and then with the help of Silas, who delivered it and helped him pen it for us. Now think about how that applies to you, to me. If you have a relationship with Jesus today, it's because someone mediated God's grace to you. Someone gave you the gospel, a relative or a friend or a Sunday school teacher. Or even if you were saved just reading the Bible, as was the case for me when I was 19 in my bedroom. The truth is I was only reading the Bible because God brought people into my life who modeled a love for and a fidelity to his word so that it was there that I would go for answers. Think about some people that God has used in your life as mediators of His grace to you. First Peter is about the true grace of God. But we wouldn't know about that true grace of God if it were not for Peter and the help that Silas gave him in penning it to us. Some of those people that were used in your life may be with the Lord. And now your task is to model their faithfulness to you in the lives of others that God has called you to model Christ in front of. 
And so God's grace is given to us through His servants. It's given to us through servants that we know as these first century Christians knew Silas, and he was a mediator of God's grace to them. But it's also, I say in your outline, given to us as well through those we do not know. And what do I mean by that? Well, verse 13 says that Mark, my son, sends his greetings also. Peter not only knows Mark, Peter knows Mark, and he knows him quite well. He calls him my son. We're going to see not literally his son, but his spiritual son in the faith, as Paul would designate Timothy in another passage of Scripture. But the people to whom this was written do not know Mark. And so in order for us to see the impact of a greeting from someone named Mark to these people, we need to go back and look at who Mark is, how God worked in his life, and how he is at the point when First Peter is written, that he can be mentioned as an associate of Peter and send his greetings to these churches in these provinces. So how is it that Peter came to know Mark? Well, the Bible tells us that, that story in the fifth book of your New Testament, the, the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 12, it says, Peter went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Now, why had they gathered, and why were they praying? If you read Acts chapter 12, you'll find that Peter would, had been imprisoned. And God miraculously freed him from that imprisonment, such that he was able to, to leave, and when he left, he went to, to this place, to the house of Mark's mother, where these people had gathered to pray for Peter, who was in prison. Now, this is just an aside, but you really should read Acts chapter 12 and this whole episode because it's, it's really quite funny. It's quite comical. Because Peter comes to the door and he knocks on the door and the servant girl, Rhoda, comes and says, you know, who is it? And apparently Peter says, it's me, Peter, and she recognized his voice and she's overjoyed. He's, it can't, it's Peter. He'd been in prison. He's here. But she forgets to open the door. And she runs back and tells all the people who are praying Peter's at the front door, and they go, this is a comical part too. Well, that can't be. We're praying for him to be released. <laughs> he can't be out front door. He's in prison. And so finally, they let Peter in. The house of Mark's mother is where these people were gathered to pray. Many believe that this may have been the upper room where Jesus met with his disciples for the Last Supper. We know it was a, a large house. It had a, a foyer because Acts chapter 12 tells us that Rhoda went to this outer court through the foyer to the door to answer when Peter knocked. And it was in that upper room in Acts chapter 1 after Jesus has ascended back to the Father that the first followers of Jesus gathered. The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 1, they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives where Jesus had ascended back to the Father after giving them final instructions. And it says, when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. So it, this would be 33 A.D. then. And it may be as early as 33 A.D. that Peter makes Mark's acquaintance. And you'll remember that it's Peter who's the leader of this first church. 
Jesus had said just a short time before, Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. And then God begins to use Peter in a, in a marvelous way. You'll remember that as the church begins in the second chapter of that fifth book of your New Testament, Acts chapter 2, that it's Peter who stands up to explain the phenomenon that's taking place on the day of Pentecost. The first 11 chapters of the book of Acts are dominated by the ministry of Peter. And so Peter makes Mark's acquaintance. He's the leader of that early church. He preaches on the day of Pentecost. And Mark is either there on the day of Pentecost or sometime thereafter he comes under the leadership of this great apostle Peter. And that's why Peter calls him in verse 13 of 1 Peter 5, my son, Mark. He's my son in the faith. God has used me to lead this young man to the Lord Jesus Christ. So Peter encounters Mark at the beginning of the Christian mission, perhaps in Acts chapter 1, or a few years later upon his release from prison in Acts 12. So Peter clearly knows Mark, has a close relationship with him. My son, Mark, he calls him. But not only did Peter know Mark, the apostle Paul knew him as well. So how did Paul know Mark? Barnabas and Paul went to Jerusalem with a gift from the church at which they were serving in a place called Antioch to provide famine relief for the Christians at the church in Jerusalem. And the Bible says when they left Jerusalem, they brought Mark with them. Acts chapter 12 says this. When Barnabas and Saul, as he was then called, Paul, had completed their mission with this famine relief, they returned home to Antioch from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. The next scene in Acts is Paul and Barnabas and Mark in chapter 13, leaving the city of Antioch, being sent by the church there to spread the gospel on Paul's first of three missionary journeys. And they do that. But then that whole episode ends at the end of chapter 15. So this first missionary journey of Paul is recorded in Acts chapters 13, 14, and 15. You get to the end of chapter 15, and it ends with something that's puzzled many of us for years. Paul and Barnabas have what the Bible calls a sharp dispute. They are so angry with each other that they part ways. And the Bible tells us the reason that they part ways. It's over whether or not this guy Mark should go with them on the second missionary journey. And Paul says nothing doing. And Mark ends up going with Barnabas. And Paul takes none other than Silas on his second missionary journey. So what happened with Mark? There's been all kinds of speculation as to why Paul was so upset with Mark that he would not take him on this journey. Some have said that Mark was just homesick. Some have said that Mark had, had gotten sick. But none of those can quite explain why the great apostle would not show more compassion to him if he's simply homesick or he got, or he got sick. And... Some have a theory, and I subscribe to this theory, that it's actually much, much deeper than that. I'm going to try to explain it, but try to stay awake, and let's see if I can keep you with me as I try to explain what I think was happening with Mark and why it was 
that Paul was so upset that under no circumstances was he going to allow him to go on the second missionary journey with him. You may remember that in Acts chapter 9, Paul was breathing out threatenings. Saul of Tarsus was breathing out threatenings against the church before he came to Jesus. He was on the road to Damascus, and Jesus appeared to him. And he says to Paul, you are going to be my messenger to the Gentiles. Paul was called specifically to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, Paul would go, as you see as his pattern on his missionary journeys in the book of Acts, he would go to the Jews, of which he is one. He would go to the Jews in the cities in which he preached, but he had no problem going directly to Gentiles and even bypassing the Jews altogether if they were not receptive. He would go directly to Gentiles, having them receive Christ, and he would put no Jewish religious requirements on them. And it's at the time that Paul started doing this, that he started going directly to Gentiles and seeing Gentile converts with no Jewish religious requirements placed upon them, that we read this about John Mark in Acts chapter 13. John Mark left them, left Paul and Barnabas to return to Jerusalem. This policy of going to the Gentiles directly without any Jewish requirements continues and it creates controversy. And it's, it's right at this time, and I and others do not think coincidentally that, that Mark leaves the party, goes back to Jerusalem. And it becomes very controversial for Paul. Not only controversial, downright dangerous. Because after now Acts chapter 13, you read in Acts chapter 14, as he continues on this missionary journey and he goes to the, the, the Gentiles, he is attacked. He's attacked many times in Iconium and Lystra and Derby and other cities. And he's attacked by Jews who oppose the gospel that he is preaching and his no Jewish religious requirements policy. And so it became so controversial that by the time you get to Acts chapter 15, the churches are in dispute. What do we do with these Gentile converts? Now, Mark's going back to Jerusalem could not have helped Paul's cause. He leaves right at the time that this policy is starting, and he goes back to Jerusalem. And then the Bible tells us that people from Jerusalem start coming to Antioch, where Paul had been sent out from. And they're questioning this policy, and this dispute arises. And so here's what the Bible says about Paul, and at this point at least, Barnabas, carrying out this Gentile policy. Acts chapter 13 says, on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city, the city of Antioch and Pisidia, to confuse matters further, that's not the Antioch that sent out Paul and Barnabas, a different Antioch. But they gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and they talked abusively against what Paul was saying. But then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, we had to speak the word of God to you, you Jews first. But since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Then the Bible says, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. And it's soon after this, 
that men from Jerusalem, the place to which Mark had returned, they come to Paul and Barnabas and they dispute with them about this no Jewish customs policy. And the result of that was a meeting, Acts chapter 15, in the city of Jerusalem of church leaders. Peter is there, Paul is there, Barnabas is there to discuss this issue. And they decided the issue saying this, we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. But they come to the end of chapter 15 now. This whole dispute has happened. In the midst of the initiation of this policy to go to Gentiles, Mark has departed, gone back to the hotbed of Jewish opposition to this policy, to Jerusalem. And then at the end of chapter 15, Barnabas and Paul are going to set out on a second missionary journey, and Barnabas wants to take Mark. And Paul says, "Uh uh-uh. It's my belief that Paul did that, not because the kid was homesick, not because he had an illness, but because his departure at the time of the initiation of this most important Gentile policy caused great harm and difficulty for Paul on the remainder of that first missionary journey. The Bible tells us this about this dispute between Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark. Paul chose Silas. Now, the book of Galatians is written right around the time that this is all happening. If you read in the book of Galatians, uh, you'll find that the book, six chapters of the book of Galatians are all about uh, Paul's trying to set straight the freedom of the gospel as opposed to a group of people called the Judaizers. These are people who said that a Gentile or anybody else has to submit themselves to the law of Moses. They have to submit themselves to circumcision. And Paul is violently opposed to this. And in the midst of this this great book of the freedom that comes from the gospel, the book of Galatians, he makes mention of the fact that he had to oppose Peter, and he even mentions Barnabas as having joined in with those uh, those who opposed the Gentile policy. Galatians chapter 2 says this. Paul says, I opposed Peter to his face because he was clearly in the wrong, and even Barnabas was led astray. So there's the scenario, and at the end of 1 Peter, you have Mark sending his greetings with Peter. So how did Mark get back in the good graces of anybody after all of this? Well, five years um, after this uh, issue had uh, arisen, and after this this break, you have, uh, or excuse me, I'm, I'm sorry, 12 years later, 12 years later, things have gotten better. It was 49 AD where this council in Jerusalem took place where Paul and Barnabas split up, Barnabas took Mark, Paul took Silas, 49 AD. 12 years later, 61 AD, 
Paul is able to write this at the end of the book of Colossians. Mark, now notice this, the cousin of Barnabas. Oh. (laughs) Well, no wonder. (laughs) Barnabas is a bit more sympathetic to Mark. They're related. The woman in whose house the early church apparently met in an upper room is, is Barnabas' aunt. Mark's mother. Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, and this is Paul writing this, (laughs) and Paul throws in the cousin of Barnabas phrase. I think as an explanation as to why this happened. Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, sends greetings, but notice, and he has proved a comfort to me 12 years after the split. When Paul wrote to Philemon, he likewise mentions Mark. Mark is my fellow worker. This is about 12 years after the split. And then five years after that, so a full 17 years after the initial break and and disagreement between Barnabas and Paul, Paul says this at the end of his last letter in the New Testament. 2 Timothy chapter 4, Mark is helpful to me in my ministry. And in between that, we have what we read in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 13. My son Mark, says Peter, sends his greetings. And later, this same Mark writes the second book in your New Testament, the Gospel of Mark, with information about Jesus and his life supplied primarily by Peter, his father in the faith. Now, what do you do with all of that? Here's Mark at the end of this letter sending his greetings, and that's how Mark got there. This dispute, Paul has nothing good to say about him for a a long period of time, but now they have been apparently reconciled. Hear this, dear friends. Dear friends, reconciliation and then restoration should always happen among believers. But it requires the humility to deal honestly with the issue and to own up to our own culpability in whatever it was that caused the friction. And to have a desire to see the offender fully restored to fellowship. These readers of the letter of 1 Peter do not know who Mark is. But just the mention of one in whom God is at work was undoubtedly an encouragement to them. This is just another brother. You may not know who he is, but he sends his greetings. God's at work in him like he's at work in you. And you know, you find that when you are among believers and you hear about God's work among believers, even if you don't know them. When I'm in China, I have an immediate connection to those men because of our bond in Christ. And when we hear of brothers and sisters in other places There's an empathy and a concern because of our family relationship, because of the fatherhood of our God and our relationship to the Lord Jesus. And that's why in verse 9 of 1 Peter chapter 5 that we saw a couple of weeks ago, verse 9, Peter reminded the readers, stand firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings that you are. And so he mentions Mark. And this brother, Mark, with all of that background, having been restored and reconciled, sends you, dear readers, his greetings. Because we have this bond in Christ, 
And so we are encouraged, or should be encouraged, when we hear about the situations for our brothers and sisters, even if we don't know them personally. And this is why Peter now also offers greetings in verse 13 from still more believers that they do not know. Verse 13, She who is in Babylon greets you. So who is that? Well, there's been speculation about it, bad speculation. This is Peter's wife, she who is in Babylon. That would be really weird language to use for your wife. Peter did have a wife. The first pope had a wife. But he's not referring to his wife here. Uh, And Peter was not the first pope. I was just kidding. So she who who is in Babylon... Is this some prominent woman in the church? It's actually a a reference to the church in Rome. And let let me tell you why. Why is it phrased this way, she, to refer to the church? Because the constitution of the church, those who comprise the church are those who are the the chosen ones. And in chapter 1 and verse 1 of 1 Peter... These readers are, quote, those who are elect, those who are chosen, it says in verse 2 of chapter 1. And now those greeting them are, in verse 13 of chapter 5, in Babylon, chosen together with you. What makes you part of the church is that you are part of God's elect, that you have been chosen, and you now comprise the company of the elect in the church. And the word, the Greek word church, is written in the feminine gender throughout Scripture, and so-called the Bride of Christ in Scripture. And so often referred to in feminine pronouns, in feminine terms. We see this in the letter of 2 John. 2 John, verses 1 and 13, To the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, the children of your chosen sister send their greetings. These are two churches greeting each other. And so it's another church where Peter is located, when this is written, that's sending greetings. But how do we know it's referring to Rome? When it says Babylon, she who is in Babylon sends her greetings. Rome is referred to as Babylon in the Bible. Many of you know that. In the last book of your Bible, Revelation, Revelation chapter 17, here's what the Bible says. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that had seven heads. This title was written on her forehead, Mystery Babylon the Great. And then the symbolism of the seven heads is given to us by John who wrote it. The seven heads are these, seven hills on which the woman sits. Does anybody know what the city of seven hills is? And that would be none other than Rome. Rome is referred to in Scripture as as Babylon. And so Peter is in Rome when he writes this letter. And he sends greetings from the church at Rome to these churches in the provinces described in chapter 1. And secondly, Rome is the capital of the empire, and it's from there that the beginnings of this persecution about which this letter has dealt is going to be coming. And then there's a third reason, an important reason. Babylon's the place where God's people were exiled in the Old Testament, and that's why Peter uses Babylon to refer to Rome. Peter says in chapter 1, verses one, verse 1, and then in chapter 2 and verse 11 that Christians are exiles in the world, just as God's people in the first part of your Bible were exiled to, 
to Babylon. So one commentator says this, just as in the Old Testament, Babylon was the center of worldly power in opposition to God's people. So in the time of the New Testament, Rome is the earthly center of a worldwide system of government and life which opposes the gospel. So these are people they don't know. Believers far off in the church at Rome, she who was in Babylon, the church that is in Rome, sends her greetings to you. God's grace is mediated through his servants. Those we know, and even those afar off that we do not know. The true grace of God is mediated a second way, and I will just do this quickly. And that is not only through his servants, but through his word. Through his word. Because in verse 13... Or verse 12, excuse me, Peter says, I'm written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. So it's the true grace of God that is, is being mediated to us now through his word, what it is that Peter has written with the help of, of Silas. Let's remind ourselves as to what this grace is. Grace is giving us what we do not deserve. God giving to us, because of Christ, what we do not deserve. And Peter is saying, I've written these five chapters to you to encourage and to testify of the true grace of God. God is giving to us in everything that I've written to you about what it is we do not deserve. And Peter is telling us in verse 12 that he has confirmed God's word for these people. The truth of God's word is confirmed, I say in your outline. Now, why do I say that? I've written to you briefly, verse 12, encouraging you and, now notice this word, testifying, that this is the true grace of God. That word testifying is a Greek word, marturion. We get martyr from it. It's sometimes translated witness. And Peter, as one of the chosen select few who were called apostles, actually witnessed what he now testifies to regarding Jesus Christ in this letter to these Christians. And now it's inscripturated for us. It's in God's Word. And even more reliable than eyewitness testimony. Verse 12, he says, I am testifying of what I have seen with my own eyes as an apostle. I walked with Jesus. I heard his teaching. I saw his miracles. I saw him die. I saw the risen Christ. Therefore, I'm an apostle and I'm a witness. I'm testifying of what it is I saw, but I have written down what it was I witnessed. And that writing, that inscripturation, is even more reliable than eyewitness testimony. Now, why do I say that? Because the Bible tells us that God's word was confirmed to us through, yes, the apostles, those who first heard him. Hebrews chapter 2. This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. People like, people like Peter. And then Peter was given the special privilege of seeing Christ in his glory. Some of you will remember in Matthew chapter 17 at a place called the Mount of Transfiguration. And so Peter sees Jesus transformed into his glorious body. And Peter testifies about that in 2 Peter, his second letter. And he says this, We did not follow cleverly invented stories. When we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
We ourselves heard God's voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration. When I saw Jesus in his glory with my own eyes, says Peter. But then he goes on to say this. And so we have the prophetic word made more sure. More sure than that? More sure than being there and actually seeing that? We have, says Peter, the prophetic word made more sure because no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And Peter is saying, I have now written First Peter to you to encourage and to testify of what I witnessed. And it is now written and inscripturated and therefore absolutely certain and sure. And then secondly and lastly in your outline, the truth of God's Word is confirmed and it is comprehensive. Comprehensive. When in verse 12 Peter says, I've written this to you briefly with the help of Silas to encourage and to testify of the true grace of God. He's saying this whole letter has been about me telling you that everything that I have said in these five chapters is all subsumed under the grace of God that's operative in your lives. Now, what has he told them? I'm just going to list these for you so that those of you who are list freaks can sleep tonight. The truth in God's Word is comprehensive. It teaches us, and in these, these five chapters of Peter, this is what he has taught. He has taught us regarding God's grace in salvation. Chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, you might jot down next to that. He has taught us, secondly, of God's grace in sanctification. Once we, once we come to Christ, now we're to grow in, in grace. And so chapter 1 and verse 15, be holy as I am holy. Chapter 2 and verse 2, like newborn babes, crave the pure milk of the Word of God so that by it you may grow. He has told us thirdly of God's grace in His people submitting, submission, so God's Word in 1 Peter teaches us regarding salvation and sanctification and submission. And you remember that starting in chapter 2 and verse 13, going all the way through chapter 3 and verse 7. Submit to the governing authorities. Submit in employment situations. Submit to one another in domestic relationships. And then lastly, this book has taught us about God's grace to us in suffering. In salvation, sanctification, submission, and in, in suffering. There's much said in this letter about the suffering of God's people. But it is always compared and sometimes contrasted to the suffering of the Lord Jesus. And just as the Lord Jesus was victorious following his suffering, Peter reminds us throughout the book that our suffering is for a little while and then victory comes. And in all of this, God's grace is operative in the lives of his people. As we come to the end of this book, here's what it's all been about, your take-home truth. Living right in a world gone wrong, that's the title of our series, requires the support of God's people and the encouragement 
of God's Word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your servant Peter, for your servant Silas, for your servant Mark, for your servant Paul. We thank you for these servants that are mentioned in Scripture, that have provided your grace to us by their testimony and by their pen so that we have it inscripturated for us and memorialized for us. And Lord, we thank you for those in our own lives, in our own day, who you have used as your servants to be mediators of your grace, the true grace of God in our lives. Help us, Lord, to be people who speak often of our thanks for our brothers and sisters who have ministered and spoken into our lives. And Lord, we thank you that in all things that happen in our lives, as your servant Peter instructed his first readers and by extension to us, in all the things that are happening in our lives, that you are, you are active in that difficult situation with the government or with an employer or in our home or that situation in which we are suffering. In all of that, it is the true grace of God that you allow these things to come into our lives and that you are doing something for us. You are not doing something to us. So I pray, Lord, that you will help me to remember that. Help your people to remember that as we take with us the truth that your servant Peter has taught us in your word in this book. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.